travel, uh, I guess as a pastor, I just want to do this or wherever I go. I look for like historic churches or big churches or an old church building. And I just want to see these church buildings. It's just kind of a fascination that I have probably as a pastor. I've uh, been able to travel uh, sometimes and I've seen St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, I've also been to Westminster Abbey in London. And uh, last fall, we got to go to St. Peter's uh, Cathedral in, in Rome. And there's one thing that always kind of gets my attention about when I go to those places. I mean, if you were to go to St. Patrick's in Dublin, uh, Ireland, it's a museum. Now, there's a worship, there was a worship service there this morning with a few people, but for the most part, it's a museum of Irish history. Westminster Abbey is a tomb. Now, I'm not saying anything negative. I'm not saying that like it's a dead church. What I mean is there are people buried there. There, there are people who are uh, the kings and queens of England are buried in Westminster Abbey. Their bodies are entombed there. And if you go to St. Peter's in, in Rome, if you go to the Vatican, it is the greatest art museum in the world. And so when I walk into a church, any kind of church building, I always ask myself a question, and it comes to mind as a part of a Bible verse. The very first time that the word church is ever used in the Bible, it's Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, in which Jesus said, he's speaking to Peter, and he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And then he continues and he says this, and the gates of Hades, that's death. Some translations say hell, either one's fine. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And when I go to into any church, including our church, I just have this thought, Jesus, is this what you had in mind? When you said you were going to build your church and the gates of hell itself would not prevail against it, is this what you had in mind? I think it's a fair evaluative question. I think it's a fair thing for us to look at a verse of scripture and say, are we living up to what Jesus said he wanted this thing to be? Well, in Colossians chapter 1, the apostle Paul is going to talk to this church at Colossae. It's a place he's never been. He's just heard about them. Now, he's heard good things. He heard that a man he led to faith in Jesus had gone to this town. He planted this church. He won some people to faith in Christ, gathered them together in a community, started teaching them what Jesus had taught. They started going out, reaching other people for Christ. They gathered together, and, and they began to live out this passionate faith, inclusive love, and living hope that we talked about last week. Well, Paul couldn't go to visit them. And in that modern technology, by the way, he couldn't go to visit them because he's in prison when he writes this. But he doesn't have modern technology to FaceTime with them or to have a Zoom call. And so he writes them this letter. And what he says to them is, my, my highest priority for you is to pray for you. Now, what Paul prayed for them is really instructive. And that's what we're going to look at this morning for just a few minutes. We're going to look at this passage in which Paul says, there are some things that I pray for you all the time. I believe that it's the same prayer we ought to pray for our church. So we'll walk through that. And then he says, and there are some things I want you to remember that God's already done for you. Here's some things I want God to do for you, but here's what God's already done for you. And so I want you to know and be reminded of some things that God's already done for you. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's walk through the text together, kind of read it in its entirety, beginning at verse 9. For this reason also... 
Since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's what Paul's going to do for us in this passage. He's going to say, here's some things I request for you. Here's some things that have already been granted to you. Let's talk about the request, first of all. The request for a prevailing church. If our church is going to be that kind of church that crashes through the gates of hell and death itself, if we're going to be the church that prevails like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, here are four things that he says that need to happen. He says, first of all, I pray for you unceasingly that you'll have the right priorities, that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. He says, I'm praying you have the right priorities, that you will know God's will. Now, when Paul writes a letter like this in the New Testament, one of the things you might need to know is that he usually writes his letters in a corrective way, like there's a problem in the church. And by problem, sometimes it was personalities, people getting crossways with one another. That happens. The church isn't perfect. There are people in the church. People get crossways with one another. But most of the time, he wrote it because there was false teaching or error coming into the church. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to straighten out some possible errors in that could have taken place at Colossae. Now, uh, when you look at this letter, you can't like pinpoint one, one big problem. Paul just kind of scattershoots and he talks about several uh, problems that could be cropping up. Like in some of the letters, there's like this one glaring error that's threatening to consume the church. It's sort of like, well, some of you watch Shark Week. And you're now afraid to even go to the beach. I mean, you're not even going to put your toe in the sand, much less put your foot in the water. I mean, uh, you, you watch Shark Week. Well, there's not one big great white shark that's threatening to consume the church at Colossae. It's more like there's a school of piranha. One piranha won't kill a man. But a hundred of them with those razor-sharp teeth can actually kill a large animal or even a human being. And so what Paul is concerned about is that this church could be consumed by many different bites from, from these small piranha that could ultimately destroy the church. There was a misunderstanding of the Trinity. He's going to straighten that out in the very next passage. Next Sunday, we'll talk about this. Who is Jesus? The most important question you answer from the Bible is, who is Jesus? Jesus asked this question, who do men say that I am? Your answer to that question means everything. So Paul's going to straighten that out. There were also some people who were very divisive in this church. And here's what they said. They said, now, those of you who are in the church, I mean, you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit, you kind of get some knowledge, but there's some super secret, super spiritual mysteries that only those of us 
who are really spiritual, we get to understand those. Now, you want to talk about elitist teaching that would divide the church, saying that, you know, like there's you normal people, and then there are these other people, and we, we've got more understanding. We understand the mysteries of God, and like you can't know what we know. We got the super secret teaching that created this division in the church, and Paul wants to confront that. He's also going to confront what we would call like lifestyle issues. There were a group of people in the church who said, the Bible isn't enough. We need a rule book. We need a book of rules about where you can go and how you need to dress and what foods you can eat and what drinks you can drink. We need a rule book to help you better understand this because the Bible's not enough. There were another group of people, by the way, where these group of people crop up, they're called legalists. They have the law and they want to enforce the law and their interpretation of it. There's also a reaction to that. The reaction is, well, my soul is saved and so what I do with my body doesn't matter. And these people were saying they were saved and following Jesus, but they're just plunging into immorality. And so you have this contrast, and Paul is saying all of these things are competing. They are like fringe beliefs that are taking a bite out of the church. And Paul says, here's what you need to do. You need to focus on the priority. And the priority is that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. I was at the gym this week, and uh, one of the guys that uh, I know there, he walks up to me and he says, hey, I got a question for you. Is Jesus coming back on September 19th? And I went, huh? What? And he goes, yeah, there's this guy, and he showed me this podcast. And, and this guy is teaching. He's got this big chart on the, on the, behind him, and he's writing this stuff on the board. And he says, all the math shows that Jesus is coming back on September 19th. This was my answer to that question. I said, I'm going to make you a guarantee. I don't make a lot of guarantees. But Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour that the Son of Man is going to return. And I don't think Jesus is going to give that guy the pleasure of being right. Now, it might happen September 18th, okay? So, so don't, don't, don't like be complacent, all right? But that's the sort of fringe kind of out there. It's just weird, okay? And a lot of times, new believers who are really passionate about learning stuff about the Bible and people who are immature will latch on to some fringe belief. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, instead of gravitating toward the fringe, move toward the center. And the center is being filled with the knowledge of God's will. What is God's will? God's will is God's purpose and God's plan. God has a will, and knowing it is super important. God has a will for the world. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God wants lost people to be saved. God has a will for his church. And I believe that God has a will for your life. God has a purpose and a plan for every life. So God has a big picture will for everybody. God has a, a will for his church, for us. And God has a will for you personally and individually. And you need to pursue that as your priority. Paul says, pray for that. Secondly, he says, purity. He says, I pray for your purity. And we as believers ought to pray for our purity. Look at verse 10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. When he says to walk, he's mean, he means to live. Like your lifestyle. 
that your lifestyle will please God. Now, I think Paul was confronting both the legalist who wanted to write a long list of rules and what we might call the people who took too much liberty, those who seem to say, well, God saved my soul and so what I do in the flesh doesn't matter and they were just taking things way too far. I think Paul is saying both of you are wrong. You don't need more rules, but you do need to maintain righteousness. So what is the answer to that? It is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's not making new rules. It's walking in a relationship with Jesus. It's the old bracelet from 20 years ago, WWJD. What would Jesus do? I know it's sim simple, but it's not simplistic. It's to simply say, does my life please Jesus? Would this choice please Jesus? Would the way I'm dressed today, what I'm wearing, please Jesus? Would, would, would where, where I go in my free time, would it please Jesus? I just think that's a question that you ask yourself. And Paul says, I'm praying for you that your life would please Jesus. Third, production. He says, I'm praying for you, not only that you'll have God's will, that you'll walk in a manner worthy of him, but look at the end of verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit. It means, it means to produce something with your life. Now, here's a great question that I've been asked before, and there's a good biblical answer. And the question is, Bob, the world is so filled with evil. And I think that's pretty much, we would universally agree with that. The world is an evil place. I mean, there are a lot, a lot of good things that happen, but for the most part, it's a troublesome place in which we live. The world is so filled with evil. There's so many temptations. Why, when a person is saved, if they're going to go to heaven when they die anyway, why didn't God just take them out and send them to heaven? Wouldn't that be like more efficient? Just... Save people go to heaven and you just get out of here. And maybe even more people would get saved if that happened. Well, there's an answer to that question. In Ephesians, another book that Paul wrote, in Ephesians he tells us that we are saved by grace and by grace alone. You're not saved by your good morality. You're not saved by being really super religious. You are not saved by works. That's the way Paul phrases it. You're saved by grace, by God's sheer grace. It comes into your life one way and one way only, and that's not being religious or being good. That's by faith, by believing. For you are saved by grace and not by works. It comes through faith. A lot of people love to quote Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, because that's what those verses say. But very few people quote verse 10. Verse 10, which flows directly out of that, says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, God has some good works for you to do. He's already prepared them for you to do. God wants you to do something. You were not saved to sit. You were saved to serve. Every single believer has something that God wants you to accomplish and something that he wants you to do. And so he says, pray that you'd be productive for the kingdom of God. We spend a lot of time in our life trying to accumulate wealth or accumulate fame or a reputation. And what we should prioritize our life on is doing the work of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, seek first 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added. All the other stuff that you need, God will bring it into your life. Finally, he said, pray for power. Verse 11, that you will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Life is hard. Anybody want to argue that? I doubt it. Life is hard. And the Christian life is worse than hard. It's impossible. It really is. Unless you are living with the power of God. Now, here's the good news. Paul says, and Paul taught us, that we have been already been given this power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power is resident in each one of us. And if we would only learn and yield and surrender and allow God's power to flow through our lives, we would be strengthened with all power. Paul says, I want you to know God's will. I want you to walk in that. What would our church be like if we as just a collective group of people said, you know what, we are going to pursue God's will and that's what we're going to do. Not my will. Not, not what I want. We're going to do what God wants and nothing else. I believe that that kind of church is the prevailing church. I believe that kind of church is the church that crashes through the gates of hell, that rescues the perishing, that sees lost people come to life, that brings people who are far from God near, that settles and, and reconciles relationships. I believe that's the kind of church Jesus intended. And he says, here's what I want you to know, that not only do I pray for you, but I want to give you some reminders of what's already, what God's already done for you. Sometimes when I pray, it's really helpful for me when I'm asking God to do things, to remember things God's already done. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. It's just in my life, I need to remember that, you know what, there have been times in my life when God has answered prayer. I need to remember that there are times when I've asked God for things over a series of years sometimes. And in his time, God came through. I need to remember answered prayers. And so Paul says, here's what I want you to remember. When you're asking God to do these things, that God's already given you some things that are important for you to be a prevailing church. It's interesting. Paul says, I'm going to make four requests for you. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you four promises or four answered prayers. Here's what Paul said. First of all, God has qualified us. Look down at, the, at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of light. He qualified us. We do not self-qualify. To qualify means to meet a standard. My daughter is a swimmer. And there are certain swim meets that in order to get into those swim meets... You have to qualify. You have to have a specific time in, say, the 100-meter uh, freestyle or the 200-individual medley. You have to meet a standard. You must qualify to get in. The qualification to get in to this inheritance of the saints of light is perfection. Anybody measure up? See, you can't self-qualify. 
You can't self-qualify. But God qualified us. He met the requirements for us. That's what Paul is saying and he's reminding us. My grandpa used to say, if you see a turtle on a fence post, he didn't get there by himself. And if someday you see Bob McCartney in heaven, he didn't get there by himself. I did not self-qualified. He qualified me. And here's how he did it. Not only did God qualify us, but look at the second uh, reality. God has rescued us. Verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Only people, people in danger get that they need to be rescued. We saw it this week. Well, man, we saw it this week. It happens every time there's a hurricane. That Weather Channel reporter, man, those Weather Channel reporters, they get fired up about the hurricanes, right? It's like the Super Bowl of weather when the hurricane comes. They are excited people. But about four hours before the hurricane hits, they always find Bubba. It's always Bubba. And Bubba is going to stick it out. Are you evacuating, Bubba? No, I believe I'm going to stick it out. Bubba, there's going to be a storm surge of 12 to 20 feet. Yeah, somebody's got to stay here and protect my mobile home. And about six hours later, Bubba is on his roof hoping that a boat or a helicopter shows up and rescues him because he realizes now he is in imminent danger. We were in absolute imminent danger. And here's how he qualified us. Jesus came and rescued us. Some of you are under the illusion that you're not in danger. I mean, life's pretty good. I, I, hey, you know, I, I know the COVID's around, but I wear one of these. My, my life's pretty good. I don't know anything about that danger stuff. Hey, Maybe when I die, I'll be in danger. But I got plenty of time to take care of that. You're living with an illusion. There's a hurricane of God's judgment, and it's just off your coast somewhere. You need rescue. And here's what happens when he rescues us. Paul says, he transferred us to his kingdom. Look back at those verses of scripture, verse 13 in particular. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The word transferred is interesting in this text. It has a very technical military meaning that most of us would just pass. That just sounds like a really flowery way to say, you know, we got saved. I mean, that, that's what it sounds like, right? He transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. But the people who heard this or read this for the first time, they got it. They understood it. That word transferred was used by the Roman army. Here's how it was used. When the Roman army would conquer a country... Their army would, the, the country's army would surrender. They'd lay down their arms. And the Roman army would then take them as prisoners. But they did something merciful. And that was they would tell the soldiers in that army 
to gather their wives and their children. And so the soldiers with their wives and their children would all be taken and they would be transferred. Now, the Romans would leave the farmers and the merchants and the other people in that country to, to tend the country. But they would take the army and their, their husbands, and, or rather their, the, these husbands, because the men fought the wars, and they, they would take their wives and their children and they would transfer them. It's the way they prevented a rebellion from happening. You just remove the army. And here's what they would do. They would take them to Rome. And in a great procession, with, all the, with the emperor and all the citizens of Rome watching and cheering for this Roman legion that had just won this battle, they would march these, this former army and their wives and children down the streets of Rome. And then they would take them. And they would take them and they would transfer them to a new place where they would settle them. Now here's what was the truth. If they were from a place where maybe the crops were good and it was an agricultural country and, and it was easy to grow crops and feed people, they would always transfer them to a place where it was kind of hard to grow food. It occupied their time. It prevented uh, them from taking up arms again. Maybe if they were from a coastal area where they had learned to fish and, and there was a lot of, of trade off of, the, of, of fishing and that's the way they fed people, they'd move them up in the mountains. You had to learn a whole new lifestyle. See, they would take them and they would transfer them from a place that was good to a place that maybe wasn't so good. A place that was, that was okay to a place that maybe was bad. But here's what Paul writes that these people got. That when Jesus came and rescued us, he transferred us not from a place that was bad to a place that was worse. He transferred us from a place that was bad to a place that was gloriously good. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So Paul says, not only has he qualified us for heaven by what he did, he rescued us, he transferred us, but the way he accomplished all of that was that he redeemed us. God has redeemed us. Verse 14. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. That word redemption is a, an interesting Bible word. It's not a word we use a lot anymore, but you might still use it occasionally. You might hear it occasionally. To redeem. It means to buy something. To pay a price so that something becomes your possession. And it was typically used of, of slaves in the ancient world. About 12 years ago, there was a civil war in the African nation of Sudan. The civil war was between some Islamic warlords in the north and the majority of the nation who were Christians, but they lived primarily in the south. And so there was this huge civil war between the Sudanese. These, these warlords were cruel and vicious people. And when they would conquer a, a village, when they would invade a village and, and defeat the, the uh, South Sudanese forces, they would take the women and children and force them into the cruelest form of slavery you can possibly imagine. 
the most humiliating, degrading kind of slavery that you can imagine. Women and children. Well, there were some Christians. Specifically, this started in Europe. It did spread to the United States where some people saw this cause and wanted to do something about it. But there were some Christians in Europe that went and they actually, I mean, this is gutsy. This is something that you better feel. I'm going to tell you, you want to talk about God's will? They must have felt strongly it was God's will for them to go do this. They went and met with these warlords. And they asked them to set these people free. And the warlords refused to do it. But they're in a civil war and they need cash because they need to buy ammunition. They need to buy weapons. And so what they offered to do was to sell them. These are slaves. These are assets. They didn't view them as human beings. They didn't view them as, as the creation of God, created in God's image. They were just assets. They said, but we will sell them to you. And so the people who had met with them went back to Europe and they came to America and they raised some money and they went back and they would go into the desert and set up these meetings with these warlords. I mean, you didn't know if these people were going to be true to their word or not. I mean, this was dangerous stuff. And they would go into the desert and they would take the money and they would hand over the money and then the warlords would hand over a certain number of these women and children who had been enslaved and degraded. Do you know what price the warlords set on a single human being? 33 U.S. dollars. One person was worth 33 dollars. You were bought with a price. But I'm going to tell you that you were worth a whole lot more than 33 dollars. Every single one of us was worth the blood of the Son of God. And he paid it in full and he paid redemption's price for you so that you could receive the forgiveness of sins. You see, this all goes back up to the top. I'm not qualified to go to heaven because I've sinned. The qualification for heaven is perfection. I can't, can't self-qualify. And so I need someone to qualify me. And that's what Jesus did by dying on a cross to pay my debt, to pay redemption's price for you and for me. Here's the good news about this passage that you just passed over. I've passed over it too. You don't see it real clearly. It's just a little pro pronoun. He qualified us. All of us. If we will only trust in him. See, Jesus died on that cross for you. He died on that cross so that your sins could be forgiven. But your sins being forgiven 
is a means to an end. And that end is that you would be qualified, that you would be reconciled to God, that you would receive the inheritance that he has for all of those who will come to faith in Christ and that you would spend an eternity with him if you would only trust in him. That is the message of the church that prevails. It is the message of forgiveness through a bloody cross and a Savior who loved you so much that he would not spend eternity without making a way for you to be there with him. That is the message of a church that prevails. May it be ours. Let's pray together. Father, you have challenged us in this message from your word. You have challenged us to be people who seek you and to seek your perfect will. Lord, help us not to be distracted by the trivial and the fringe and the stuff on the the edges, but Lord, help us to focus on what is in the center of the target, and that is seeking first you and your kingdom and your righteousness, and grant us that we would be people who pursue your mission. That your son came on a mission to rescue. And God, we ask you today to grant that our church would be a church on that mission. That we would all collectively be a part of what you want to do in us and through us. Now, Father, I pray for those who may have never received this forgiveness, who may have never allowed you to qualify them for that inheritance. I pray today you'd do that work of rescue in some souls, that there are those who need to cry out to you and say, Dear God, I am a sinner. I've done things that are wrong. I've broken your commandments. But I believe that Jesus came to rescue me, that he died a death I deserved. He paid a price that I couldn't pay so that I could be forever with you in heaven. I ask Jesus to come into my life today to forgive me and save me. In Jesus' name, amen.